Antonella Wilby is a PhD candidate and National Science Foundation graduate research fellow at the Contextual Robotics Institute at University of California in San Diego and a National Geographic Explorer. Her current research focuses on the development of autonomous underwater robots and vision-based algorithms for mapping and exploration of ocean environments with the ultimate goal of better understanding and protecting our blue planet. She holds Master of Science and Bachelor of Science degrees in Computer Science from University of California in San Diego. Antonella Wilby, welcome to One Planet. Thanks for having me. So you have this very exciting career that I, I think many people don't even know is open to them. I mean, you tell us about it, but you're a robotics engineer. You came up through computer science. What is this world of being a deep sea ROV pilot? What is that like? It's, it's a fascinating world. It's actually something I kind of fell into by accident. I didn't really set out in my career saying this is what I want to do. It, it wasn't something I had really heard of or been particularly aware it existed until a few years ago as well. Yeah, my career is a little bit of a hodgepodge of different elements, but they kind of work together nicely and it all falls under the umbrella of technology development for ocean exploration. My academic background is in computer science and marine robotics. I have another job as a deep sea ROV pilot aboard exploration vessel Nautilus and combine a lot of different aspects in the pursuit of environmental exploration and understanding more about our natural world, both to understand it for scientific purposes and also to protect it for future generations. And what inspired your interest in ocean? I have always really loved everything about the natural world. I grew up playing outside, hiking in the you know, mountains near my house. I actually wasn't, I, I'm from Los Angeles in California, but I actually was not that close to the ocean and didn't really have a, a lot of access to it. I mean, I've seen the ocean and, and been to it many times, but it wasn't until actually in university that I actually kind of got involved in more ocean exploration. It just wasn't something that had really been on my radar, even though I've always felt a connection to it and loved it, but it just wasn't really part of my day-to-day -day life until I was in the university in San Diego and started working on an underwater robotics project. And that kind of opened up this whole world to me of learning about ocean exploration and the different ways that technology really enables exploration, especially in, in the oceanographic space. Exactly. We have so many, I mean, they're, you know, brave divers and brave teams, but we have, you know, the way we're built, we have these limitations. So it's amazing how you can extend what's humanly possible. And as you said, it's not a field that a lot of people know about and still as much exploration has taken place, there's still so many unexplored areas right on our planet. So we have this big rush for, you know, exploring outer space, but we also have this planet we still don't know. So in your field, and also as, as a woman as well, I mean, who were your mentors and who, you know, helped you on your journey as to inspire you? And what did you learn from them? I guess my earliest mentors, I would say, were in high school and community college. I had some really wonderful physics teachers that just really inspired me to continue to study science, to go into engineering, because I really love physics. I didn't honestly have a huge amount of direction to this area. I, I loved working with my hands. I love building things. So engineering, it seemed like a logical career choice. 
And they really encouraged me in that. And later in the more recent times, I've been lucky to work with some really great people in the ROV industry. The ROV director and manager on Nautilus is incredibly supportive. Like uh, Nautilus, I think is a really unique ship and because the oceanographic research space is not particularly diverse and Nautilus kind of, there's always room for improvement in any place, but they really work hard at including people from all backgrounds. And so it's been an, an interesting place to work because oftentimes you generally work with a team of six. So when we're piloting the ROVs, we run 24-hour operations. So we have teams of two that are on four-hour shifts twice throughout any 24-hour period. And most of the times I have been on the ship, we've actually had 50% women on the team, which in the ROV industry is pretty much unheard of. But on other ships as well, I've been on Falcor, not, not as an ROV pilot, but I've gotten the chance to meet some of their ROV engineers and they've been really supportive, teaching me about the vehicle systems and showing me how the vehicle works. It's a similar system to the one we have on Nautilus, but there are some key differences. And I think that's been really great is that generally with some exceptions, the people in the industry are supportive and it, it is changing slowly, but, but surely. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to hear about that kind of gender parity because we hear about it being an imbalanced place in, in the sciences, I can imagine. And ROV, just for those, I think we have a vague idea of what it is, but what is it when you came to it and how is it, I, I imagine that it's developing so quickly? Yeah, so an ROV is a remotely operated vehicle. And typically when we say ROV, we, we are referring to an underwater vehicle. There are certainly other types of robots that are remotely operated, but most of the time ROV does refer to an underwater one, even though it's not in the acronym. And these vehicles are remotely operated. So we have pilots that are typically on a ship that's deploying the ROV. And that's in contrast to like a submersible that would have a crew. So there are people that explore in vehicles where you are actually physically on the vehicle and you go underwater. That is a lot more complicated because those vehicles have to have a life support system. They have to have oxygen to support the humans that are crewing that submarine. I personally think that's really cool. And I hope one day that I could get the chance to go on a submarine, but there are a lot of disadvantages to that type of ocean exploration because you're a lot more limited in your bottom time, basically, because you are limited by the amount of oxygen that you have on board to support the humans that are controlling the submarine. When you are going down to look at really deep parts of the ocean, it takes a really long time to actually get to the bottom. And so all of that kind of puts constraints on your exploration and the amount that you can do, the amount of work that you can do, and the amount that you can see. With remotely operated vehicles, we basically have, I mean, they range in size. Some of them are really, really big, like more bigger than a car. Some of them are pretty small. Ones that we use aboard Nautilus are 4,000 meter rated. So that can get to, you know, a good percentage of the ocean, other than the very deepest parts of the ocean you can still explore. The benefit of that is you are not limited by oxygen on board. They're actually powered from the surface, so you're not even limited by you know, battery power or anything like that. Really, your limitation is the amount of samples that you can bring up from the ocean's ocean um, floor. So if, for example, you're taking a bunch of rock samples, there's only so much physical space aboard the vehicle that you can fill with samples. But if you're doing a video transect, for example, you can really have the vehicle down for days and days on end. And that really increases the amount that we're able to explore of the ocean. 
And so, of course, there are limitations. You have to eventually bring it up for maintenance and, and do the, those sorts of things. But remotely operated exploration is a really key tool that we have to explore the deepest parts of the ocean because we can see so much and not have those limitations of supporting humans and making sure they're safe at all times. Well, I can go a little into more detail on the vehicle system. So the, a lot of the vehicles will have manipulators. So they have arms on board the vehicle that are actually pretty sensitive. And you control the arm with, we call it the, the mini master. And it, there's basically a small replica of the arm that you have in the control van, which is where we pilot the vehicles. And you can make it do really complicated manipulations when you're at most 4,000 meters away from the vehicle. And we can use that to take samples of corals. We have instruments aboard the vehicle like a suction sampler. So you can actually slurp up a jellyfish, for example. You could take a rock sample. We do sediment cores. So you basically take a core, usually plastic, and put it into the bottom and then bring up that sediment. So it really can support geology, biology, all sorts of different aspects of deep sea science. One of the questions that I'll get asked a lot is, well, isn't that bad for the environment? Like you are going and taking a coral, you're taking a jellyfish. And that is true. I mean, when we do science, there is some cost to, you know, if we take a jellyfish, we are putting that jellyfish and preserving it and putting it in a lab or, or whatever. But the way a lot of this exploration used to be done was by dragging a net along the ocean floor. So you can imagine if you're just dragging a net and seeing what comes up in the net, you're destroying everything that you drag the net along, right? So like, we'll see these black corals that are probably a thousand years old and we're able to go and just take a snip and then do, I mean, I don't work on the scientific side of it, but the scientists who are taking those samples can then go and analyze the DNA to see if it's actually any species or if it's the same as this other species. And maybe we didn't know that this particular species was in this range. And then we know that now based on DNA analysis, for example. So there is a cost to it, of course, but it's so much more precise and so much less destructive than older methods. There's also the benefit of knowing exactly where a sample took place. If you've just dragged a net for 100 kilometers, you don't actually know where those samples came from. So it's really revolutionary in terms of our ability to actually understand the deep oceans. Not so long ago, people just assumed there was nothing there. Oh, it's just sand or something. They just didn't even think that there could be this amazing variety of life at the bottom of the ocean. Now, of course, we know that there's an incredible amount of stuff down there and we haven't seen most of it. So it's really cool technology. And I'm just really still excited to be part of a part of all of that. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, considering how just even how dark it is down there, I, I mean, I can understand why people wouldn't think there was much life or any life. And so mm -hmm. it is amazing how you're able to really go through those ex extreme challenges that would challenge any like human diver. And then the periods of time that you can really do your exploration, I believe with say James Cameron's deep dive, the Mariana Trench, I guess he was only there three hours. And that's an area that's not really been explored. I know there were some others, but not much. That's not enough time to really map. And that's what you also do. You have this innovative, I guess, this simultaneous localization mapping SLAM for small robots. Tell us a bit how that works. Simultaneous localization and mapping in robotics is kind of, it's less of a single algorithm and more refers to a class of algorithms. Basically the problem that we have is if we're a robot exploring our environment that we've never seen before, we have two simultaneous challenges. One, we need to 
figure out where we are within our environment, we also need to map the environment around us. And this is classically referred to as a chicken and egg problem because when you have measurements coming in from your sensors, but you don't actually know the locations of the things that have given those measurements, and you're also traveling and you don't necessarily know where you're going. So it's this concurrent problem of trying to basically understand your world and understand where you are in that world. And this is a really foundational problem in robotics. It's been worked on for more than 30 years, I'd say, definitely more than 30 years. And it's gone from being pretty unsolved to a, a fairly solved problem. There's a debate about this in the robotics community about whether or not it's solved, but for the most part, we have algorithms that work really well in structured environments. So for example, in an office environment, if the robot's moving around, there's not a lot that's particularly challenging about that environment, so they can navigate really well. Then you take things and put them underwater and everything gets a lot harder. So you have features that are moving around. So you have six degrees of freedom in your motion. And whether it's your own motion or some environmental dynamics, like the wave comes, you can move a lot faster and you can get lost because the algorithms are not actually robust to those sorts of different changes. Whereas if you're just the robot running around in an office environment, you're, you know, you're moving in on a plane, so you don't have to worry about moving not only in three dimensions, but in six degrees of freedom. And you don't have things that are necessarily moving around you as, as much. And so one of the reasons I really like the underwater environment from a technology standpoint is it kind of pokes a lot of holes in all the algorithms that we have that other domains might say, that's a solved problem. We don't need to think about that anymore. And then you put it in the list environment and say, actually, we need to think about this a lot more because it's not working in this environment. So that video that I showed was actually a coral reef at the Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology. And fortunately, it was actually a dead coral reef. So it did have some like algae that had grown on it. So there were little you know, things that were moving. But when we're working on a coral reef like that, you have a lot of static features that you can track from frame to frame. So if you see this feature in one image and then you move and you see it again, you know that it's not moved, it's not changed shape, it's in the same place. And that's foundational for the algorithms that we use. Unfortunately, in the marine environment, that's not an assumption that you can always make. And that becomes really apparent in places with a lot of soft corals, for example, like sea fans, Gorgonians, anemones, a lot of those sorts of moving things, or in more temperate environments, marine vegetation. So kelp, algae, seagrass, all these things actually violate the foundational assumptions of the mapping and localization algorithms that we're using. And that's kind of where my work has diverged into is actually trying to figure out how to make these algorithms function in environments that pretty much violate all of our foundational assumptions. That's a really hard task. I'm not claiming that I'll actually solve all of that, certainly not for my PhD, but trying to figure out the parts that you can solve to make robots more applicable to all sorts of different domains. And that's sort of where my interest is. Well, it is fascinating. And I'm not sure, is that classified as AI or machine or adaptive learning, or is it I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just going to go off on a tangent. No, I'm curious about that. That's a, that's a good question. The classical approaches I would not put in the world of AI or machine learning. There are people using machine learning and AI in different ways that are related. A lot of computer vision actually has gone down the machine learning pathway for a lot of different aspects. 
but for what we're doing here, it's more what I would call cl classical techniques. We're not using that sort of stuff. But there's certainly a space, but it's, it's not exactly what we're doing here. Yeah, it seems like if it was being used, it seems like a positive use of it. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation now, or uh, it just made me reflect because we, what you're pointing to is that like we feel like now a lot of people feel like they've been losing their jobs to AI. It's predicted that if AI is not already smarter than us, then it will be and, you know, all sorts of redundancy issues. And so when we find jobs for the humans who invented the robots that will replace us, it is a real issue. But I would say that the underwater applications where you can't send humans down is definitely a positive usage of that. But I mean, I don't know what you feel about, I feel we do have to be careful about it to a degree. Yeah, this is something that I think about quite a lot and honestly have a lot of disagreements with a lot of the developments in my field. And part of the reason I do work in the area I work in is technology really does have a lot of power to help us explore. But as you said, we are sort of developing technology at a pace that is replacing people, but our economic systems are not designed to have people that can't find work. And that's a whole other can of worms. I think there's a lot of debate over whether machine learning is, it's not true intelligence and whether or not it will actually ever get to the point where it's true intelligence, but it has replaced a lot of older systems. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's not so good without going down a rabbit hole, technology development for development's sake without sort of care taken to think about the human aspect of it. And that is part of the reason I choose to work in what I work in because I don't feel it would be ethical for me to work in a lot of different areas. <laughs> and, you know, we see that in lots of different ways, like to your point about when machine learning is useful, really machine learning at its core is pattern recognition. And if we have massive data sets, we can learn patterns from those data and apply that to different things. And that's great if the data exists. One of the reasons it's actually really challenging in the marine environment is we don't have those massive data sets in the same way that we have. For example, Facebook is a good example of this. Where we're really, really, really fantastic at facial recognition now because we have massive self-labeled data sets that people have chosen to put on the internet over the years. There are also problems with that when we look at in-bake racial and gender biases, right? So like, it's not actually perfect, even though we've gotten to much better classification accuracy than we had 10 years ago, but we also have baked into these data sets our own human biases, which we can't just say the algorithm is independent of us because it's simply not. And if we're not careful, we can make really terrible decisions. There are things where these things are being used in Algorithms to determine who gets parole, for example, is something that I can't speak a lot about because it's not my area of expertise, but I do think we need to be really, really careful about outsourcing things to a technology and assuming the technology is neutral because that's really, really dangerous because it's actually not. It actually does encode our own human biases because it's developed by us. That's a whole, <laughs> a whole rabbit hole. And there are a lot of people far better qualified than me to talk about the ethics of AI and facial recognition. And so I can't really speak to it a lot, but I do, you know, I agree with you. And unfortunately, one of the things I've chosen to do is just work in a space where I believe that technology can just simply help us for, for good, you know, and that is pushing ourselves past the limits that humans have to explore dangerous places. We can only physically go so far in the ocean. We can only physically go so far out into space, but 
we can still use robots and technology in our own innovation to push those human limits. And that's, that's where my passion for technology lies because there are a lot of problems with a lot of different things. But I think this is one of the areas that you can argue it is you know, more purely used for, for good. And one of my older mentors, I'm paraphrasing, but he, I think he might've been paraphrasing someone else, but the exploration is the essence of the human spirit. And you know it really is. And that's an area where I think technology is, is really used for good. Oh, I, I love that phrase, uh, exploration is the essence of the human spirit. And you touched on also would machine learning ever approach intelligence. And, and I think that related to that exploration or this big curiosity is the imagination. And that's something that although machines, we can train it to go through so many trial and error very quickly, but the imagination is still something mysterious and curiosity and exploration is part of that. An algorithm is only going to... It's, it's only going to be a mechanical imitation of that, I feel anyway. But it's interesting because you were saying about, okay, so we've developed these robots that can work on land and we feel like that's all sorted. But when you give them the challenges of going underwater, then it just makes you realize, because when you come up, oh, this isn't working right. You just, it makes you realize how much, how much processing just, it makes you wonder in awe of the human brain or all creatures, you know, have a different processing, but the brain and, and our visual processing and how sophisticated that is to make, and then to try to make something that somehow replicates that how complicated you have, how many different things you have to think of, but we just do it all the time with our little extra sensor machines that we don't even know is taking in all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it makes me also wonder about, we're limited in what we can see by how we see. We look at us, we have like the two eyes, we're the two hands too. That's how we're orientated, right? And when you go underwater, there's so many fascinating creatures like shrimps that like with eyes like ping pong balls attached by little strings. It's practically like outer space creatures. What have you learned? I mean, what are some of those wonderful creatures? I'll think about octopus and what they do in terms of, you know, mimicry and transforming themselves in shape and color. Uh, just tell me about some of the wonders that you just find. I'm a huge cephalopod fan, actually. I think they're ridiculously cool. I saw a talk by someone who actually did study this exact thing in in cuttlefish, like how they're able to actually mimic their environment and like looking at the actual cells on their skin. But it was just so cool to see how that works from a biological standpoint. I scuba dive as well a lot. So I kind of have affection for both shallow creatures that you can see when you're actually scuba diving and deep sea creatures. I think some of my favorites, in addition to cephalopods, I love like manta rays are, I think, one of the more incredible species because they're just so graceful. The giant oceanic manta rays get, they're enormous, like five to six meters across, I think, which like in their wingspan. I've seen some that are in Hawaii, which are the second largest species, I believe, and I've seen up to like four meters, I think is how big they get. And that's mind blowing. So to imagine <laughs> that there's another species that gets even bigger, I really hope I see one one day. Sharks are another favorite of mine. I am a huge fan of hammerheads. I think they're just really ridiculous and cool looking. One of my favorites that we often see in the deep sea are uh, frogfish, which are a type of anglerfish. And they kind of, ha- they have fins, but they kind of hop along the floor and they just look super ridiculous. <laughs> they're pretty much like any fish that hops 
like Brunskulpen are another one that I particularly enjoy. I'll just list all the things that I like, but yeah, I like it when animals have like kind of funny looking locomotion. There's just so much incredible stuff to see. It's, it's kind of hard to put an ROV down in the ocean and not see something incredible because we just have had so few human eyes down in those parts that are that deep. Obviously people who are added scuba divers, the shallow parts of the ocean are a lot more explored either professionally or by amateurs, but there's still stuff that people discover and stuff that's very rarely seen. But then the deep ocean is just almost entirely unexplored still. With all the work that we're doing, Nautilus is one, there are other ships that do this sort of exploration all over the world and we still have barely scratched the surface. And so you're going to Hawaii next and Mm. just tell us a little bit about that and what you're hoping to discover. I'm going to be in Hawaii as an ROV pilot. So in my, in my own work and in the robotics space, I can kind of direct the research and plan out what I'm looking at. When I'm working as an ROV pilot, we're part of a team and we're there to do the job that is dictated by whatever science crew we have on at that time. And so I actually don't know yet what we're going to be doing. We'll be working on the Papahanaumokuakea National Monument, which is I believe a newer marine monument sort of on the western side of Hawaii, like pretty far away from the actual islands, like in the older islands that have since sort of disappeared under the ocean. But I, I don't know the answer to that yet because we'll find out like a little bit beforehand what the actual cruise mission is. And that will depend on basically like scientists, wherever they're from, will write a proposal and say, we want to do this and we want to use these resources for that. It's planned out a couple I think a couple of years in advance, I'm not on the expedition planning side at all. And it really depends on what their goals are. So if they're geologists, we might be taking a lot of rock samples. If they're biologists looking at coral reefs or corals, we might be looking at coral samples. If they're looking at fish, we might be doing other things. So it's, yeah, I'm not really in a position to say what we'll, what we'll actually be doing on that particular cruise. But one of the beauty, like one of the greatest things I think about ocean exploration, that I think people gen- tend to understand in the community is because there's so much that we haven't seen and there's so much cool stuff down there. Like we might be down there with an objective, like we wanna go and take that rock sample. But if we see something insanely cool, like my very first ROV cruise, we saw a chimera, like a, a ghost shark, which I think they've only been filmed like a handful of times by Mbari, I think was the first one to ever film, first time it was ever filmed alive. And that was like in 2014. Like scientists knew they existed again, cause they got pulled up in these, you know, t- like trawl nets, but they had never actually been filmed alive. And so Mbari, I believe, was the first one to see one in 2014. And then we saw another one in 2018. There have been a few more sightings with ROVs since then. But that's the sort of thing, like you're there, okay, to pick up a rock, but we've also seen this really amazing shark. We have to kind of use that opportunity. And it's it, there's a lot of opportunistic exploration in it as well. And I think generally people are really supportive that we're all in this as a very large oceanographic community. and the cruise objectives have to be met and the science has to be done. But if we see something cool along the way, we'll certainly take the opportunity to, to go check it out. Oh, it's a great adventurous life. And you're also a National Geographic explorer. So as well as just exploring your own curiosity, you're a science communicator. Just tell us what, what that's like because you're bringing these two large audiences. So I I work with National Geographic. They funded a couple of my projects over the years. One was an older project in Mexico 
trying to build autonomous camera systems to, well, we were trying to take the first ever photograph of a vaquita porpoise, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's currently the most endangered marine mammal in the world. It lives in the very northern part of the Gulf of California in Mexico, and just the teeniest, tiniest top of it, where the Colorado, well, the Colorado River Delta. When we were working in that area five or so years ago, well, I guess it started around five years ago, but my project started five years ago. There were maybe 60, between 30 and 60 remaining. And now, unfortunately, the, the numbers of that species have dropped significantly to basically, I mean, the current projections say they will be extinct in the next few years. There's been a lot of work that went into trying to save them. And for a lot of reasons, it hasn't been particularly successful. But my part of it was just a very tiny part. And that was that they've actually never been photographed underwater. And I thought that perhaps if we could use technology to accomplish that, we could help the conservation effort. I don't know if that would have been true. We weren't successful. It was a really good learning experience for me in a lot of different ways, but it wasn't a success. I mean, we had one camera system. We're trying to photograph one of 60 porpoises in the, in the ocean. You know, it's like you say a needle in a haystack. It's worse than that, I would say. And so, you know, from a technological standpoint, there was a lot of learning. From For me personally, I learned a huge amount about how conservation actually happens in, in the real world. And technology certainly has a place for that. But I do think there's a tendency as engineers to come in and say like, well, we can build anything. We'll just solve all the problems. And, and there's a human element of it too. And sometimes you really have to take that human element into account. You can't just show up and assume that some fancy new toy is really going to be the thing that, that solves it. And, and so, I mean, for me personally, it was a really good learning experience. And I'm really grateful to National Geographic for taking a chance to sort of fund a project that had kind of a low chance of being successful from the standpoint of actually getting that photograph of, of Akita for the first time. It was successful in other ways with technology development. And I think there's certainly other applications of that technology, but that was sort of my getting started with National Geographic. And they've since funded my PhD research as well, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah, I think, I guess I'm, <laughs> I do a little bit of science communication. It's not the main focus of my work. I have a lot of other things that I do, but I, but I also recognize and I'm grateful for the fact that through my work, I've had a lot of opportunities to go to places that a lot of people just simply won't ever get the chance to go. And I kind of like taking those opportunities to try to share with people what that's like. I honestly had no idea that I would ever be here. I mean, I, from a you know working class background, didn't have a huge amount of opportunities to go off and you know do whatever, but now I can do that. And that's that's one thing that I particularly enjoy. I always remember once I had gone, I have total side project that I haven't worked on for a while, but like a little like 360 degree camera. So, I mean, it's, it's old news now, but five or so years ago, it was like the new rage, right? With like the Oculus Rift and, you know, headsets where you could actually be immersed in the, in the environment. And I had gone to Monterey Bay and just stuck a camera on the water and took a 360 degree video of the kelp forest, which I'm being from Southern California. Like I like kelp forests. They're pretty close to my heart temperate oceanic environments don't get as much attention and love as coral reefs. I mean, obviously any ocean 
any environment is really cool, but the kelp forest I think is a really unique environment because I think a lot of people have not even conceived that that is down there, right? And so I had just this video, which I didn't think was anything particularly special. And I was at a National Geographic event showing that had kids in, from the neighborhood coming in to see all the different things that were going on at Nat Geo. And I had the VR headset and gave it to this kid. And he was just so excited. Like, I just remember him screaming, oh my God, I'm underwater. And it was just like, I thought it was kind of honestly a bit of an embarrassing demo. Like it wasn't that polished and it wasn't that fancy. It was also an environment that a lot of people go and scuba dive in Monterey. It's not the most far-flung part of the universe, but I do think being able to actually show that to someone can really open their world. And then, you know, something that they never knew existed, sort of like me, becoming an ROV pilot. Like, this is not something I knew existed four years ago. And maybe that can change the course of what they're interested in. It's, it really does. And we don't know our effect and our ripple, you know, in terms of just giving, sometimes people just need that spark and just to know that that's possible. A career in ocean science is possible. And so that your example and your excitement, I think your passion definitely communicates that. I'm so glad that you also mentioned kelp forests because some uh, kelp forests are disappearing. And of course, we know about the coral reefs, but I'm just wondering how your work helps us both understand the process of global warming and pollution, and in what ways can it help map and help stop the process? Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot. And, and that's, that's what drives most of my work is trying to make it relevant in some way. It can be a little bit of a challenge in academia where the measurement isn't necessarily based on the good that you can do, but there are other sort of metrics that might not line up particularly well with sort of real world impact, depending on, on what you're doing. The initial inspiration behind the work that I have been working on for my PhD was trying to develop a low cost, small, easily deployable system that you could use to map coral reefs. And that has subsequently been extended into stuff like kelp forests, which is what I'm working on right now. It's not ready yet. So I collaborate with a group at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego called Stuart Sandin's lab there, has a pretty long running project called the 100 Island Challenge. And I think it's expanded to more than 100 islands by now, but the initial idea was that they would visit 100 islands like tropical islands, so with coral reefs around the world and map representative areas at ultra high resolution. And they'd revisit the same sites every two or three years to see how they were doing. And, and they're, it's an ecology lab, so they're focused on what, what you actually learn about the environment from that. And right now they do it all with divers. So they go out with a big camera system and they swim and take images with the camera system post-process it with an off-the-shelf 3D reconstruction software. And they do get these really beautiful high-resolution models of coral reefs, which they are able to use to make inferences about that ecosystem, like perhaps what corals tend to be growing near each other or all sorts of different things. But it really just gives you a snapshot of that environment. And there's sort of a, a bigger picture that might be missed. And it's also incredibly labor-intensive. I mean, I, as someone who really loves diving and being in the ocean, I don't want to like just replace all the humans, but 
if we had a way to automate that process, we would be able to get more data. And hopefully that would help ecologists and biologists actually understand more and maybe have a clearer picture of that ecosystem. And so that was kind of the initial inspiration behind what I was working on for my PhD is if I can hand them a robot that does the same thing, that actually frees the scientists up to do science instead of sort of acting like a repetitive robot because you have people with PhDs in marine biology swimming back and forth for hours on end. That's kind of in a lot of ways a waste of their time because that's something that can be so easily automated. Well, I say easily. Easily is relative, but that's something a robot would be good at. Whereas if the robot was busy just mapping things, they would be freed up to go and investigate something that was you know, particularly interesting and maybe take a lot more detailed look at specific things, whereas the robot's kind of giving them the bigger picture. And that's what my PhD work has tried to develop a system that could do that. As far as kelp forests, that's sort of where I talked before about when everything in the environment starts moving, all of our fundamental assumptions get thrown out the window. And so that's a problem that is not really solved. We don't have that same level of technology that, you know, you can swim around and take 2000 photos of a coral reef and get this amazing, beautiful 3D model out of it. If you did that in a kelp forest, you'd probably get just a pile of mush. You wouldn't be able to get anything out of it because the technology doesn't actually represent those environments yet. But I think there are, as we're seeing all over the world, so many environments are changing so fast and we need technology that helps us monitor that over time and helps us understand the environments that are really critical to some sort of intervention or you know, whatever it is. And kelp forests are also susceptible to that. Like I am currently living in Australia and Tasmania, I, who always wanted to dive in Tasmania, I haven't gotten there yet because I've moved here right before COVID, but apparently Tasmania's kelp forests don't exist anymore, pretty much. I think you might be able to find a few, but they just aren't there. And that's someone, it's just, it's tragic. And I'm not claiming that like this technology would have prevented that in any way, but I think we do need to be able to look at these sorts of environments and use the technologies that we have and continue thinking of new ways that we can at least help in some way, because we are really on the brink and we can't keep losing entire ecosystems because we will not survive. Yes, and another thing that we're very concerned about, or if you're paying attention, anyone should be concerned about is the ocean as a carbon sink and it's losing its ability to absorb carbon. So what are some of the technologies and solutions you've come across to reverse this? Are you skeptical or supportive of geoengineering? I will say that that is one big reason that marine vegetation is a particular interest of mine because a lot of people talk about rainforests, which are obviously incredibly important. I believe seagrass and other types of marine vegetation sequesters even more carbon than rainforests. And it's something that people don't even think about because, you know, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Like it's below the ocean surface. We hear a lot about coral reefs, but there are these other environments that, you know, are critically important and that we need to be thinking about obviously. It's, it's hard because I think we get our attention really split in lots of different areas because you think about one thing like we need to help the coral reefs and then you think oh there's this problem with seagrass and there's a problem with the rainforests and we're always pulled in all sorts of different directions so it's, it's really hard I think when there's just so much that we're faced with just so much destruction. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah 
I mean, I'll definitely go and read about it now that you've mentioned it, but I don't really feel qualified because I'm not familiar with, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with smaller scale stuff. Like, in fact, there's something that if it weren't for COVID, I would have tried to get involved in here in Sydney is basically there's this type of either marine plant or algae that is native to the New South Wales coastline. And it's kind of been wiped out or maybe not wiped out, but it's a lot less than it used to be. And they've been trying to reintroduce it in plots around in Northern Sydney. And I think that's really cool. And that's, that's a way a community can directly get involved, right? Like if you're a scuba diver, you can find something like that and get involved. I have a friend that works with them and she's not a scuba diver, but she will go and help them out when they're, when they're doing their work. So those are really, you know, small scale projects like that. But I think it's important to not discount really small, I'd say small scale, but that's not like derogatory. It's the small things that we do will make a difference. Yeah, it's really true because it's not just the solutions we all have to be involved with. It's not just scientists. It's not just those who are designing the robots. I think that we can all do at least to shine the light on the extinctions taking place all around us. And although I I know it's not your focus, but we are thinking about water scarcity. And I'm wondering if you or maybe some of your colleagues might be working on that, about what's the future of water and... I know there's desalination projects. I know there's all this kind of interesting things taking place. Yeah, I don't personally know anyone working in any sort of water technologies. It's a a fantastic question that I don't really feel qualified to talk about either. But I know, I mean, being from California and then moving to Australia, like water is definitely a, a key resource. And I think in the next 50 years, we're certainly going to have to have a lot of technologies that address that. In addition to robotics, though, there's a huge amount in the sort of green technology space for green energy. I think there's a lot that I'm excited to see what happens in the next few years. And hopefully that will get more investment. Yes. And we, yeah, because we all have to be thinking about our future and, and then the next generation. So it's something we're committed to do our part with ourselves. So as you reflect on what life lessons have been important to you and the systems you feel we need to change. What do you feel is important for young people to know, preserve, and remember? It's a bit of an emotional topic for me because I, I mean, I'm in my 20s and I already, there's just so much that I know I'm never going to see. And I'm, I'm in a lucky place where I get to go to these places and see things that most people can never dream of. People a lot younger than me, what's it going to be like when, when they're my age, when the kids being born right now are, are my age? It's kind of a horrifying thought. I mean, it seems a little bit cliched, but I, as someone who really feels most at peace and connected with nature, and someone who's very ambivalent about technology and my role in it, I think try to experience it as much as you can. Put down your phone and go outside. I, that sounds incredibly cliched, but it really is what we need to do. And that can be something active, like it can be getting involved in a beach cleanup or planting some native seaweed project if that's near you. Or it can be something personal, like just going out for a hike and listening to the birds in your local area. Like it it sounds so simple, but I do think that it's those things that we're gonna miss when they're not there anymore. I, I know that's what I'm working on. 
I think it is profound. We all need to identify what we'll miss, what we love, what is important to us, what we value, so that we know how to spend our time effectively to preserve it. It's a big message. And as so many of the big messages are, are simple. So thank you, Antonella Wilby, for helping push the boundaries of exploration and helping us understand the mysterious world that lies underneath the surface. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your example of endless curiosity, passion, and respect for our oceans from which all life stems and for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Anna Iselli. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music was written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, contact us at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.